Welcome to Boston Venue, the channel podcast. This is the true and complete story of the legendary Boston music club, The Channel. From its shaky launch in one of Boston's grittiest neighborhoods, through the glory years of beer-soaked rock, punk, and reggae shows. From an incredible roster of artists, and its demise at the hands of local mobsters after a spectacular run. A demise that ultimately led to a murder that would take 25 years to solve. This podcast includes explicit language and violent episodes. No sugarcoating and no bullshit. Let's rock. On the last episode, Mama Africa, hip-hop, rap, afropop, ska, reggae, blues, funk, R&B, juju, black music representing many different cultures that span the globe were a vital part of diversifying the channel's programming from the very beginning. Of the thousands of shows that play the channel, many stood out, some for amazing, memorable performances, others for, well, let's just say unusual circumstances. Yeah, so the longer we were able to survive and thrive, the easier it became to get top-level touring acts to play the channel. By the mid to late 80s, we were regularly getting avails for uh, attractions that would normally play a theater or even a small arena. And uh, we could compete with some of these larger venues because we had alcohol sales to subsidize the act. Sometimes between the cost of the talent, the rider, and the paid ads, the amount of uh, box office wouldn't cover the nut. Uh, Alcohol sales were a good way to subsidize that. But a lot of the shows that seemed uh, large and profitable really weren't. Ephemeral rock stars come and go, but true indelible talents remain relevant for as long as they choose to create. These enduring artists are exceedingly rare. The rest of the industry is populated by mere mortals, blue-collar journeyman side players always on the make for their next gig, their next tour. Chicks who can't play but have the look. Guys who can shred but no one wants to look at. Dinosaur acts from previous eras sucking on their own fumes. One-hit wonders jonesing for another hit in front of ever-diminishing audiences. Unimaginative opportunist clinging to the latest trend. Like I said, mere mortals. But all the while, legends walk among them. Legends that the channel was able to book. Stevie Ray Vaughan, Bo Diddley, Roy Orbison. So we're getting a veil for Roy Orbison, who was making a comeback of sorts with a project he was doing with the Traveling Wilburys or with some other uh, legendary rock stars. So he was doing a tour and, you know, the money was steep, 30 grand for two nights, but it was Roy Orbison. So we went for it and uh, we booked him for two nights. Roy Orbison played two shows at the Channel on December 2nd and 3rd, 1988. Anyone lucky enough to be in attendance would remember the sets for another more tragic reason. He died three days later. Tom Hammerge and his band were regulars at the Channel. They could always be counted on to deliver powerful sets, whether as headliners or opening for national acts. As a drummer, composer, and producer, he has collaborated with many rock greats, including Eric Clapton, Bo Diddley, Susan Tedeschi, and Buddy Guy, among others. His work has also earned him eight Grammy nominations and three Grammy wins. (laughs) 
Tom Hambridge, along with his band TH and the Wreckage, opened for Roy on his last ever club appearances. Yeah, the Roy Orbison show was just amazing. I was Chuck Berry's band leader, so I had had the uh, opportunity to have Roy had opened a few shows that we were at previous to this, and I remember just standing and, and hearing him sing and go, "This is this is the most amazing voice." Uh, you know, I've ever heard. He had this kind of dark mystique about him with the glasses and the hair and a crazy kind of history about him. But I know that at the show at the channel was packed. The audience, it was amazing just being able to open. It was an honor to be there. And uh, he went into, you know, Only the Lonely and Bayou and Pretty Woman. I mean, it was, it was crazy. A dream baby, you know, and you're watching the guy sing it and he hardly moves. He, he kind of just stands there and, and his mouth hardly even opens, but this amazing sound comes out. And, um, anyways, and I think he ended with it's over. And, uh, I remember being backstage and he walked off the stage and, uh, they may have like put a coat on him like a, like he was Elvis or something. And, uh, but a guy lit up a cigarette, his road manager and, and kind of held it in front of him and he took a drag off it. And, uh, and man, he like killed that cigarette. It was like, I thought, man, this guy needs to smoke. Um, and anyways, unfortunately, uh, I think it was, I think he may have done one show after that and, uh, he died. And, I, you know, it was it was uh, such an honor to you know to to be a witness to one of his last performances and to open the show with my band TH and the Wreckage was it was a you know once in a lifetime thing and I'll never forget it. John Boy Franklin was also there that night. John Boy missed very few big shows at the Channel or other Boston venues. As a freelance photographer for UPI, as well as co-founder and contributor to Beat Magazine, he always traveled with a camera, complete with accessories, including telephoto and wide-angle lenses, high-speed film and filters, and he had his own darkroom development lab at his home. In the over 40 years he's been at it, John Boy has shot over 100,000 photos and he has attended thousands of live shows and was there that night with plenty of color film. I get a call from Barbara Orbison. Said, I understand that you have some photos of my husband, Roy. I said, yes, I do. So me being a good guy, I send her the photos and the negatives. She took my name and address, and ever since that day, I got a birthday card from her. I got a Christmas card. Uh, when my grandmother passed away, she sent flowers. And what I didn't know was that they formed a foundation in Roy Orbison's name, and she was the president and CEO. So in 2010, I joined Facebook, because Johnny Bond says, you got to join Facebook. She friended me on Facebook, and I said, where are you? In L.A. Okay. Well, I want to come out. You know, I want to see Roy's grave. You know, she says, I have to take you there, because there's no stone. I said, there's no stone on Roy's grave? And she said, no, I want to grieve in private. You know what would happen if I put a stone on Roy's grave? Then everybody would come. She goes... After I go, there'll be a stone there. 
Roy left a lasting imprint in Boston with his unforgettable shows. A year later, on December 6, 1989, In Dreams, A Night to Remember, a tribute concert took place at the channel featuring some of Boston's top local rockers, including Jamie Rubin, Scott the Cat Anderson, Stu Kimball, Scruffy the Cat, Fahrenheit, Ultra Blue, The Roy Orbison Show by Pat Benty and the Shaboom Band, and Tony and Sal Baglio. Sal Baglio, a longtime frontman of the Boston rock and roll stalwarts The Stompers, recalls that night. The channel. The Stompers played there quite a bit. We played there for many years to a lot of people. We recorded live music from there. We did videos. Always a great time. The Roy Orbison tribute night. I believe I played Not Alone Anymore, which was a song from the Wilburys. It was a great night. My brother was on bass. Great band and uh, a wonderful tribute to Roy. The art remains. But the legend dies, and those who saw him will never forget. There were times when superstar legends would get together to perhaps create something even better. Peter Tosh did a song, Walk and Don't Look Back with Mick Jagger, Aerosmith and Run DMC's 1986 remake of Aerosmith's earlier hit, Walk This Way, are a couple of examples. It doesn't always work out, though. Bo Diddley played for us a few times. He was always competent. The show was always tight. The musicians were well rehearsed. Always did a really good show. The last time he played for us, he was paired up with Ron Wood of the Rolling Stones. I remember hanging out with uh, Ron at the bar a little before his show. He was actually promoting an art book at the time, and he actually gave one to me and signed it. But even legends can falter. In the fall of 1987, Bo Diddley and Ron Wood teamed up for their Gunslingers tour. A review by Brett Milano of the November 12th show in the Boston Globe reads in part, quote, Bo Diddley only hinted at his true power, and instead of Ron Wood pulling him out of the doldrums, Ron seemed only too glad to join in. Bo started out good for the first two songs, but after he introduced Ron, his worst tendencies took over. Both Bo and Ron were off-key and out of tune. Bo broke a string during Roadrunner and didn't finish the song as most guitarists would. Instead, he displayed the broken string and spent a good five minutes changing it. They both exited without an encore. This was their Gunslingers tour, but the only Gunslinger quality was that they took the money and ran. End quote. And there were other shows where the hype definitely exceeded the delivery. A recollection I have of the channel was I saw a Who cover band that had John Entwistle as their bassist. And if memory serves me correctly, they were from Buffalo. They were okay. They weren't great. But what I found funny was that John just played bass and they only allowed him to do his two songs, My Wife and Boris the Spider. And he was there for the rest of the night. And it was, it was cool because as a Who fan... I'm seeing a member in the club, but as I got older, I realized how kind of sad it was for him because he probably needed the money because the Who weren't touring at that time and didn't get their second resurgence. And I remember the, cl the, the club being fairly packed. I, don't, I wouldn't say it was sold out. It might have been, but it was just one of those shows that it was a thrill to see him on stage, and I got to meet him after the show as he was walking through the club. But like I said, as I got older, I was like, he played with a Who cover band, 
and they weren't even that good. As business picked up and the channel began to gain attention, both locally and even nationally, getting press in publications like Billboard, Rolling Stone, and the New Music Express, among other media, there were also signs of trouble brewing ahead. Meanwhile, as the nights heated up, events were unfolding that were set to change things at the channel forever. Expenses were getting bigger and profits smaller. Jack Burke was a trained accountant and a partner in the ownership group and saw things as they began to get, well, a little dicey. So I guess probably somewhere in the mid to late 80s, we had bought out Joe Ciceroni and Richard Clements. We had done a whole lot of different extracurricular and outside ventures. We did a lot of renovations to the club. We had to put in new bathrooms. We built a nickel place. We had to put in a sprinkler system and a whole fire suppression system. The rent was getting higher and higher every month. Boston Wharf Company, that was the owner of the building, saw that we had pretty good success. They would see all the cars there at night and say, well, I should be charging them more rent. And that went up countrywide session going on. We did less customers. They weren't, people didn't have as much money. And it was funny. We used to be able to tell what the state of the economy was by putting uh, ads in the Boston Globe for help wanted. Sometimes when the economy was good, we'd put an ad in and say, come down on a particular day and time, and two or three people would show up looking to be security people or waitresses or something. But when the economy was bad, we had literally had dozens and dozens of people that would show up looking for jobs. The liquor liability insurance went really crazy. It went, I think, from like 4000 a year to like 25000 a year, which is somebody has too much to drink there and goes out and hurts themselves. It's the, the, the club's fault and have to have insurance to guard yourself against that. We just got to the point where there was not enough coming in and too much going out. What seemed like a great idea at its inception turned out to be a long-term problem, namely the mosh pit. Originally intended to improve sight lines, the pit, as it became known, presented a whole new set of issues. People were hurting themselves in the fervor that accompanied the wild moves that came to be known as slam dancing. Something that seemed like a real good idea at the beginning to improve the customer sight lines by sinking a portion of the floor in front of the stage about eight inches ended up becoming the mosh pit, where slam dancing became a thing in the mid-80s, especially amongst the all-ages crowds that came in for punk shows, usually on Saturday or Sunday afternoons. As much as we tried to discourage it at the beginning, it was very hard to control. And uh, when you know acts like Iggy Pop started crowd surfing and jumping into the crowd and people went into a frenzy and started jumping up and down, there was uh, bound to be problems, injuries, and we started getting a lot of slip and fall cases that we had to defend in court and sometimes even to pay. And our insurance rates as a result of some of those slip and fall cases skyrocketed. 
So what seemed like a real good idea at the beginning proved to be not so much in the end. So slip and fall cases, people, I think maybe because lawyers were looking more for customers and they would take these different cases on a contingency basis. And you'd go to take these cases, and even if when you won the case, because most of them were just frivolous cases, but we would have to spend, you know, dozens of thousands of dollars to defend ourselves, defend the corporation against these frivolous cases. And then you'd win, but you didn't, all you did was you didn't have to pay the judgment, but you still had to pay your own legal fees. So even when you won, you lost. To tell you the truth, I became tired of selling alcohol. I liked the entertainment part of it, but I didn't really enjoy selling alcohol and dealing with drunk people and uh, insurance cases and issues like that. I actually really wanted out of the liquor business, even though I still wanted to stay in the entertainment part of it. We've always had different things going on. First, buying out Joe Cicerone and Richard Clement, and then we were doing... Uh, Music Expo and Cuisine 86 and Concerts on the Common and the Entertainment Network. Rather than just concentrating on the Channel Club itself, there were too many outside adventures that we were working on. In the late 80s, you know, we were starting to do really well. Of course, expenses went up. All through the time where the channel was open, I was very distracted, sometimes unfocused. I always was looking for uh, new opportunities. You know, we did everything from a music festival in 1981. We opened a restaurant in Kenwood Square in the mid-'80s. We booked the Opera House for a year for all popular entertainment. Uh, we helped book concerts on the common when Don Love bailed on the city uh, at the last minute. We began the Boston Music Awards in 1987 at the Opera House. We bought a condo on South Street, uh, and opened an entertainment company called the Entertainment Network, where we booked acts like uh, Frank Sinatra, Liza Minnelli, Symphony Hall, uh, Wang Center. Then we did a food show. We did a college expo. We were very distracted, and uh, we weren't really, at least I wasn't really uh, paying as much attention to the channel as I should have. The team made a decision to try and bring in some fresh money. When word got out, an old acquaintance started coming around again. Remember Steve DeSaro, the failed real estate developer who turned out to be a frontman for a notorious gangster? He came sniffing back around when it was clear that the establishment was starting to struggle. Peter Boris remembers DeSaro's renewed interest in the channel. Yeah, we hadn't seen Steve in a while, and then he started coming around. And he became a lot more of a regular, where we didn't even have to place him on the guest list any longer. He he was very charismatic, and, you know, he related to the uh, staff, you know, to the waitresses uh, and the bartenders, and, you know, a lot of the bouncers, he'd go around, he'd give a high five to the, the bouncers that uh, they were doing a good job, and, you know, as far as they knew, that he was a friend of mine, and he was a guest, and he was welcomed into the club. Steve always talked about wanting to make a lot of money, and he also had access to a lot of money. So it was like he had an open checkbook to, you know, become an investor or to become involved, you know, in another operation, you know, with other backing. But he didn't really get in detail as far as, you know, who he was associated with. But, you know, being in the nightclub business, uh, you can only imagine, you know, and maybe in the back of your mind know that that, uh, that the association, you know, may very well be there, you know, as it was. So DeSaro started talking to us about money. He thought that he could bring in some fresh money. He talked about a particular acquaintance of his, an Italian contractor from Providence, who had a lot of money and he wanted to invest in a nightclub. 
DeSauro had some strange friends, and they seemed harmless at first. In the next episode, we take a look at a mainstay of the channel's programming, heavy metal. The music was hard and loud, the challenges even bigger. As the channel attains both fame and infamy, things began to get difficult. It was complicated. Seeing blood in the water, the larger sharks began to circle. All of a sudden, there were a lot of shady people hanging around. Two hearts beating as one now. Music featured in this episode by TH and the Wreckage and SSD Control. Intro music, John Butcher Axis. Contributing storytellers, Tom Hambridge, John Boy Franklin, Sal Baglio, Peter Boris, and Jack Burke. Boston Venue, The Channel Story was conceived and created by Harry Boris. Executive producer, David Ginsberg. Produced by Chachi LePret. Written by Harry Boris. Contributing writers, David Ginsberg. Edited by Christopher O'Keefe and Jennifer C. Boris. Audio production and recording engineer, Tori Lamb. Graphic designer, Lisa St. John Bennett. I'm your narrator, John Laurenti. Check us out on thechannelstory.com or on Facebook at Boston Venue, The Channel Podcast. Leave your comments and share your stories. If you like the show, leave a review. We really appreciate it. 